So, Tom, how did you start off in jiu-jitsu? Like, what was the what was your first kind of interaction with it? Um, actually, I was in the army, and um, I was on a kickboxing thing. Kickboxing was big. It was actually a regimental sport. So on uh, Wednesday, if you did regimental sport, you got to go and hide and not actually do any soldiering. You got to go to the gym and play. So I wasn't a very good kickboxer, but regimental sport was my way out on a Wednesday. Um, so I was doing kickboxing and one of the guys from the 1st Royal Tank Regiment had been on holiday in America and came back with a video, a VHS video. You are, you know what that is, T, but it's, it's an old <laughs> device you can watch film on. And um, he goes, you need to see this guy's combat sports is going to change forever. And uh, so we went up to the NAFI, climbed up, put the video in in the NAFI and there was this skinny dude called... Royce, well, we all thought he was called Royce, but he's actually called Hoyce, Hoyce Gracie. And he was fighting a guy called Kimbo Slice, or is it Kimbo Slice? I can't remember, Kimbo, which was this big islander looking fellow with a ponytail. And they had this big old fight for ages, and eventually Hoyce won. Um, and I was like, what is this? This skinny Brazilian guy who's just literally laid on his back with his legs wrapped around this guy for 10 minutes, then like punched him in the head a bit and choked him out. And he goes, oh, it's even better. This is like the second one. There's a first one where it was really bad. So he gets this other video out and puts it on. And we're all in the NAFI instead of doing regimental sports, just watching UFC 1 unfold on TV. And, and as a martial artist, um, I'd already studied karate and had a black belt in karate, um, did kickboxing, done a little bit of judo, um, done taekwondo so I thought I was quite well rounded and I, I was just like they're hitting each other in the groin they're bare knuckle fighting everything's going apart and this little skinny dude with his gi on is wrecking blokes I was just like I've got to do that so the very next Wednesday at Regimental Sports instead of being in the boxing ring with the boxers jumping around and everything else like that people started grappling and it was really good because we had a couple of judo people, but they didn't really do groundwork. They just like beat you with the earth. And so we just put on, basically there were bag gloves and started trying to do it. Uh, fast forward a few years. Um, so then 1999, I was desperately looking for a, to do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but in the UK then, uh, outside of London and Birmingham, there wasn't a lot. And I was in Bradford and Lincoln. So that, sorry, um, Tom, at that point, there was Roger and Braulio over, was it, or Mauricio was over at that point, or? It was Mauricio, Mauricio. Uh, Braulio wasn't here yet. Um, right, okay. Hodger was travelling backwards and forwards to Brazil, and he was, uh, the first time I met Hodger was when we were both blue belts. Oh, so, okay. This is what's exciting uh, about then, the chat. It's like Tom, Tom's got the proper history down. And for our members, mate, mm -hmm. like this is what we want to hear, because... I can only tell it from the start of my journey, but obviously you mm. go 10 years further back than that. So this is awesome. Mm. So you met Roger when you were both blue belts in 99, 2000-ish? 
about 2000 this it was i got my blue belt i think 2001 so it might be in 2001 um but he he was literally flying um and mauricio gomez um who that point in the uk for my understanding was kind of for me he was the head of jiu-jitsu in the uk he was a very respected but i think it was a fifth down then already and Bearing in mind, having a blue belt back then was a massive deal. It's like, I got my blue belt. It's taken me three years, you know, boom. And the people are like, oh, my God, you're a blue belt. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> but actually, nowadays, you know. That was what it was like as well. Yeah. Um, and I remember uh, I met a guy called Darren Good who had been to Torrance, California. Um, and he trained under Hoist. and was a blue belt under Hoist at the time. And through his network, um, I met Mauricio Gomez, uh, then met Hodger. And the academy we were training at was called Kickers, which was a, an academy that did lots of martial arts. It wasn't a specific academy. We had Thai boxing, we had Wing Chun, we had stick fighting, we had judo, we had normal jiu-jitsu, traditional jiu-jitsu. Um, and then Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, where we were just trying to figure it out, um, traveling to seminars, you know, jumping in the car, driving all the way down to Birmingham for a two-hour seminar, driving all the way back up. And, and yeah, it's just crazy. I mean, and, you know, I did a private lesson with Mauricio Gomez the day I got my blue belt. And I paid him £30 for that. <laughs> And it was an hour and a half. And he asked wow. me if that was okay. <laughs> wow. And I was it's like, Because yeah. like now, now people are so um, flattered, really, with the amount of jiu-jitsu that's out there. You know, they've got an academy a mile from their house. There's, there's plenty yeah. of black belts knocking about nowadays. But back then, um, when you started, I mean, when I started, a blue belt was still kind of like a demigod. But when you started, yeah. they just there were none around, right? It was just so um so unique and um and so yeah to, to think that you could train with and this is what always fascinated me about jiu-jitsu like you had access to the top man in the uk that's like meeting like beckham yeah, I mean? it's like it's like it's like going off to david beckham and, and spending an hour with him for 30 pounds and going uh can you teach me to kill the ball into the net mate and he goes yeah yeah uh, that'll be 30 pounds is that all right with you i'm not charging too much i'm not too sure uh, it's like Tiger Woods, you know, going to learn how to hit a ball with Tiger Woods and giving him 30 pounds and patting him on the back and say, see you next time. <clears throat> but the great thing about Mauricio and why I have um, a deep respect for Mauricio is back then, the culture around jiu-jitsu was a little bit different. Not necessarily better, but very different. So um, I got given my blue belt and the way I got given my blue belt is the kind of way I... I brought you guys up. It would be in a lesson or at the end of a seminar. You've done really well. Here's a blue belt. Just have it. There was no testing. It was the, the person kind of represented what you as an instructor wanted as a blue belt. So yes. he just literally, I was, I was sparring. Um, I was sparring this really massive guy. I can't remember his name. I should do. And basically I couldn't do any, I couldn't beat him. And I put an armbar on him and he stood up and he lifted me up and he curled me on his arms. His arms were massive. Uh, I was like 75 kilos then. So obviously not the same way as I am now. 
Um, and I wouldn't let go. And he bashed me into the floor, swept him over, and then I did knee on belly. And eventually he was knackered and gave up. And Mauricio just went, yeah, Tom, your belt's the wrong color. So I looked down, I had a white belt on. There was no stripes then. I was like, I'm sorry, what, what? he goes, it should be blue. And for me, um, you know, I'd already had a, a black belt in traditional uh, jiu-jitsu, one in karate, kickboxing. For me, that moment was pivotal. The way that I respected this man as a fond of knowledge, turn around and go, your belt's the wrong color. And then I'm panicking and he goes, that should be blue. And there's that moment in my my younger mind going, eh? what? What do you mean? He goes, it should be blue. And I was like shaking and it was like winning the World Cup or, you know, just, just, it was, a, it was literally the most pivotal moment in my life, apart from what I did in the military, the achievements I had there. This was something that was three years in the making and yeah, it was really good. But what also was interesting about that journey with Mauricio was um, the culture around jujitsu was Mauricio was kind of, Grace Bar was a little bit different then. It was um, structured very differently. It was a bit, bit more relaxed and a little bit more, yo, bro, we'll, we'll see if we want you or not. And he said, uh, you're Gracie Baja now. Because at that point, Mauricio was the head guy for Gracie Baja. And I was just like, this is awesome. I found a team. I found a family. He's, he hasn't asked me if I want to be here. He's like telling me. And that was so amazing. The great thing about that was I got promoted to the blue belt on a seminar on a Sunday and I didn't have a blue belt. He didn't hand me a blue belt. He just told me to change the color of my belt. You know, he's a black belt fifth down and everybody else in the room apart from one person is a, is a blue belt, is a white belt. On the Monday, I bought myself, because it was for my birthday actually, so it's February. So on the Monday, I bought myself a private lesson with Hoist Gracie who was down in London at Mark Walder's club. So I jumped on a train, traveled five and a half hours down to London, got to the academy and, and Hoist Gracie was doing private lessons and I just sat and watched him for two hours. <clears throat> then he goes, Tom, it's your turn. Because he just went through private lessons. You literally lined up and went through them. And there was a tiny little mat space. Um, and Mark Walder uh, is one of the founding members of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in the UK, an absolute legend. And um, he was very much into Hoist at that time. Um, and I stepped on the mat with Hoist and I was shaking. I'd seen this man wreck people. Like literally this skin, he's like, what's under, what you don't realize about Hoist as well is his presence. Like Mauricio's got a presence, an air of laid back confidence. Hoist is really tall and gangly and long. So I stepped onto the mat and he goes, have you done any Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu before? And I said, well, actually I got promoted to blue belt. And he went, have you now? I went, yeah, yesterday by Mr. Gordon. He's like, yeah, Mr. was a good guy. He goes, so you know jujitsu? Do you want us to spar? I was like, yeah, I do. <laughs> Did you change my gi bottoms first, but then I will. <laughs> yeah, and I like, yeah, I do. And what was amazing about that thing, he goes, do you want to start stood up on the, or on the ground? And I went, oh, stood stood up. So I kind of put my hands up joking, like in a, in a, in a, like a, 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 an MMA fighting stance. And Hoist Gracie kicked me straight in the head. He's just like, whoosh. And he bashed me on the head. And then he goes, do you want to go to the ground? I went, yes, please. <laughs> and then I, I, it was only a short private. It was like, it was, it was like 45 minutes. 
and he just demolished me and uh, in a different way to Mauricio. Mauricio is it was very different in his way. Hoist just like beat me up. Uh, but yeah, and that was that was where uh, that was my big introduction. You know, you get your blue belt and you either quit or, or you're in forever. And that for me, like that moment with Mauricio going, your belt's the wrong color, then the trip down to meet Hoist and then kicking, literally kicking me in the head. That was me bit forever. That was me. Even now, everywhere in the world I've ever been, jiu-jitsu, all over. Having and done then, like uh, all those uh, other martial arts before, Tom, what, what was it that resonated with you about jiu-jitsu, you think? There are very few martial arts that I feel are honest. And what I mean is, an honest martial art for me, I feel boxing, as you know, boxing is a martial art. It's a form of martial combat. Boxing is very honest. But within boxing, you can look amazing and only hit the focus mitts and punch back. To test the honesty of boxing and to test the honesty of your boxing, you have to have the courage to put a gum shield on, head guard on, big old gloves and get in the boxing ring and get hit and hit someone. But you have the option in boxing not to do that. You can go across to a boxing class, be padded off the entire time, shadow box, hit a bag, have a really good workout. Your punches will be beautiful. Your technique will be spot on for doing them, but you don't actually have to, have to test yourself. And the scary thing about some of the martial arts, and I found because I, I had a few head injuries, I got knocked out a few times, um, is if you have a normal life, you can't go into work the next day with your nose broken, black eyes. Um, what jiu-jitsu offered was the honesty of a judo kind of thing. Judo is very honest, you know. You, in order to do, do judo, you have to throw somebody and be thrown. In order to do Brazilian jiu-jitsu, how it is practiced and trained, you have to learn the technique, you have to use it on different opponents, and then you have to roll it. And every jiu-jitsu class I've ever been to all over the world, there's always this culture, and it, the culture is very same. And how, it's how it's structured, there's always this moment within the class where you know it's time to roll. And that's what we as jiu-jitsu practitioners normally love. It's, yeah, I've just learned this really, really cool armbar variation with everybody else in the class. And now I'm going to go and try and get it on you for 25, 35 minutes. And that absolute honesty of being able to go really hard and really powerful and try your technique or really slow, but have it done and have that option just to tap out and go, dude, you just murdered me. You, I was dead. Can we try it again? And go again. And go again. And go again. And that improvement through adversity and that improvement through loss and that understanding of your own body through feel and emotion is something you can't find anywhere else. And through doing other martial arts, which I thought I was okay at, and then coming into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu where the honesty at the end of the class is always tested, it was just like, this is so honest. Yeah, the honesty, the honesty can go both ways, doesn't it, Tom? Because it's like the honesty mm. of your own jiu-jitsu, like, is my jiu-jitsu any good? Like, can I get mm. that armbar on a willing opponent? And also the honesty on the guy who, or the girl who has tapped to say, mm. you beat. Like, the tap is an acceptance that you got the better of me, and if I didn't tap, you would have broken my arm or you would have strangled me unconscious. So the honesty goes both ways, and that's where we, f we found, and you'll have seen this um, um, much more than me, but people with ego don't tend to last long in jiu-jitsu 
because you, they can't handle the, the honesty. It opens you up, right? Everyone sees who you really are in that moment. You can't hide on the mats. I mean, you can pick a role if you're injured and go with somebody easier, but everybody sees that. And I think the honesty is, is you're right. You can go both ways, but it's what you find in jiu-jitsu as well. If you're injured, you can go, I've got an injury on my right knee. We'll go, I'll tap if it hurts and you get it good. And the person, the good, honest person will go, I'm not attacking that fellow. I'm going to go for this, 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 and this. And it's, it, as, you're, as you allude to, it's, it's very humbling like when you're a purple belt and you think you're a legend, like I might have done, and then some blue belt kid who's like literally only just come out of pajamas and, and, and think beats the living daylights out of you in front of everyone. And you're like, oh my God. Okay, I need to go away and refine my skills. And that constant development, even, even as we progress for our jiu-jitsu journey to black belt or, or even beyond, is always about the honesty of the sport. Because you can't be a black belt and stand out front, for instance, teaching a class of 30, 40 people and not roll with all your students. Not accept that if you lose, it's okay. You know, there's a lot of honesty to come from it. And that actually what makes you a better martial artist is it's the one thing. It's the one thing Victor kind of said, mate, when, uh, when he gave me my black belt, is he said, the only thing I will ask of you as one of my black belts is that you never turn down a role. That's the one thing he mm. said. You can't, because there will be that blue belt, pearl belt killer who will beat you, but you can't turn it down, even in front of all your students. You have to do it. And so that's yeah. interesting. And you have to you have to acknowledge that them killers are out there. I mean, it happened to me in Florida. I, I rocked up to Gracie Baja Clearwater, rolled, I think there was like 25 black belts on the mat, including AJ Exam. And, you know, there's like some legends on the map. I rolled with three black belts and did really well, you know, not, not, we all know I'm not a world champion or anything, but I did well. I held my own. I was proud of myself. Had a five-minute rest, looking around. This little skinny purple belt came up to me and goes, hey, bro, professor, can I roll? I went, absolutely, mate. He destroyed me. He like, <laughs> he he tied me up in pretzels, pinned me on the ground. He double-legged me from my knees. And afterwards, I'm sat at the side of that going, and like we always do, oh, my God, what a roll. You're a monster, first thing. How much do you weigh? Second thing. You've trained before. Yeah, I'm, I'm an all-American wrestler. I was like, that explains why I hurt everywhere. You know what I mean? It's, it's the honesty and, and the camaraderie that you get. Just, you can't beat it anywhere else. That, that um, integrity in, in martial arts is something that's like really appealing to me as well. I think mm. you, know, you guys both know, coming from military backgrounds, like that's also, like integrity is like held up as one of the pillars of values that you have in, in the armed forces. Um, integrity is not just about the pillars of Mount Martial Arts, it's about you as a person. And I think jujitsu tests your integrity often because <laughs> you can hide, you can try and hide. But if you want to be a leader on the mat, you can't. You have to inspire and give people the confidence to know that it's okay to lose. Yeah, I mean, if I may say, I mean, we, you know, we'll get into this, I'm sure, but, you know, I started training under you, right? And you, you taught mm. us that. And this is not the camera or any kind of bullshit like genuine genuinely i do think you were a really humble guy on the mat and, and because mm. when we first started you would destroy everybody then over time the levels kind of started to change a little bit and maybe we'd kind of mm. on an even roll and then mm. further on down the line maybe it would catch you every now and again it was never an issue it was never a problem it no. was almost a, and like the other day i rolled with t and um he caught me in a submission for the first time and like i remember saying on the q and a like, i felt proud about it I felt mm. proud for him 
because you mm. see your students develop and in your own image, and that's amazing. But like, I just want to say thank you to you because you taught me that, and now we're passing it down the line. So props to you, man. Yeah, I mean, it's something we as... I mean, if you're a world champion who, who is a complete athlete and wants to go out and win every competition, that's great, but your jiu-jitsu journey won't always be that. And as a, as a tutor, as an instructor, as a teacher, as a professor, holding that responsibility, you know, you want your students to be more than you ever were. And there should be a point where you've given your student everything you can and your student will take everything that you've given them mold into what they've got and then they will give you back a better version and then the payoff for that is i've taught you for four years and or three years and i've been able to dominate you i'll do this this last year things are changing this last six months now i'm in my battle now my growth starts again now my journey recomes because i've brought you to where i need you to be to in order to enable the growth within the club and as long as your ego is not in the way, you will all learn and all will grow. What was the um, the next step after receiving your blue belt? Like, what was the uh, what was the journey like? Well, I did what every other blue belt in the UK did at that time. Decided I was going to be an MA fighter and stop doing jiu-jitsu for a little bit. God, tell us about that because you went out and did a bit of you did competing in Japan, right? Yeah, a little bit out there, not a lot. I went out actually with a guy called Mark Spenner. And uh, the idea was to go out and compete. And what ended up happening is we went to Nuki Nakai's gym, who is legendary for having the fight with um, Hickson. And there's, there's, we're there in Japan, lost, and uh, we were looking for a fight and we're looking for a place to train. And our guide, Keshi, turned around and said, we can train at Nuki Nakai's gym. It's free. You've got to go to the daytime session. It's free. So we rocked up there. And there's a very good reason it's free for everybody during the day because they literally beat the living daylights out of you. You go there. They they use you as cannon fodder. Um, my my good friend, Jonathan Bolton, at the time, was double-legged through a wall. The wall collapsed. So it was a plasterboard <laughs> wall. It went in. It slid down. And we were all like, ooh, that sucks. The fight's going to stop. It didn't. They grabbed his legs, pulled him back on the mat, and just started going. And... Uh, um, our good friend Mark Mark Spencer, who's over in Bradford, who's another black belt. He was um, doing some kickboxing sparring or something, and he got hit in the eye, and his eye split open. And they just put egg on it and sealed it back up and just carried on fighting. It, it, it was just a different world. Um, we went out there with big expectations and got humbled, um, which which was good. We came back and. Through doing the MMA sparring and stuff, um, I got knocked out a few times and had um, some problems with my inner ear, which I still suffer today, and found that it was really difficult to concentrate and and focus. So I went back to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Um, from our time in, in Japan, um, we made friends with some... Japanese uh, jiu-jitsu practitioners and the three of us were ordered our purple belt not long after that by them now I was quite happy with that at the time I thought yeah purple belt I'm happy with this as time moved on and we were training and teaching um, I started needing to be back around Mauricio and 
At that time, then, Mauricio had introduced a, a young brown belt to the UK called Braulio Estima, who was an absolute playboy legend. And he literally was this tall, gangly thing that could put triangles on everybody. And he was doing seminars really cheap and stuff. So we started training under him. He then became the head of Gracie Baja, realistically then at that point. Um, not officially, but he was the highest graded person in because Mauricio was back in Brazil with Hodger and they were both doing, at that time, every, all the focus in Grace Baja was on the heavyweights and it was all on um, Hodger and pushing Hodger to be the world champion. And um, Braulio was with us and um, he stopped in, in Bradford uh, with Darren at Kickers. And then eventually um, I wanted to do my own thing. And Gracie Barra Leeds was born. The the original Gracie Barra Leeds, not um, the amalgamation. Um, and it was a small little club that I went along to. And I contacted Braulio and said, look, I haven't trained with you guys for a long time. I've been doing the MMA stuff, the Nogi stuff. Um, can I be involved? Um, and he goes, well, I'll speak to Darren because he was still in touch with Darren. Good. And... Uh, there was a seminar took place and it was a really good seminar. I've still got the photos. It was amazing. Um, and I took my purple belt off uh, that I'd been given and I gave it to Braulio and I said, I'm, I've bounced around. I was a bit of a Ronin looking for the MMA and stuff. Um, here's, here's a purple belt. I went, I'm, I'm not a purple belt under you. I'm not at your standard. So I put my old blue belt back on, went back into the seminar and yeah, got demoted to blue belt uh, by myself. He thanked me. He said, thank you very much. That's That shows something. Um, and then five months later, there was another seminar and he was traveling up quite regularly then to Leeds to do seminars for the people I was teaching and training with. And he came in and he, there was a brand new purple belt. He went, this is a purple belt from me. And again, it was one of those moments in life where I fell into the trap possibly, if I'm honest, where the belt became more important than the journey. And me handing it back to Braulio, the one I had saying, I want to be a, a purple belt at your standard. Um, and I did. I eventually got that. Um, and became a purple belt under Braulio. The club grew and grew, and it was quite organic in its growth. Um, we never did children. We never taught children. It was just a real eclectic mix of welders, plumbers, policemen, some of them you may know, um, and other people traveling. But it's very transient still. It wasn't the, the structured academy format that we have now. Um, and my first for knowledge was insatiable. Wherever Braulio was, I'd go, traveling down to Birmingham. Um, we'd go to seminars. And, and that, during this period of meeting Braulio and stuff, he didn't introduce me to his younger brother, Victor. Uh, I was a, a blue belt, a proper blue belt at that time. And Victor was this purple belt with massive like Afro hair and ridiculous strength and abs and was just on the um 
on the cuff of becoming a phenom. But he, again, he was traveling in and out of the country, going back to Brazil. And then what happened was I'd been a purple belt for maybe a year and a half teaching at that time. It wasn't unheard of for even blue belts to have academies. Um, I was purple belt. Uh, me and some others were teaching. Um, um, Adam Marshall was a purple belt teaching as well. Um, Darren Good was a purple belt. Um, and we were all just trying to figure out jujitsu. And all the, between the three of us, we're running what was basically a Gracie Baja Academy um, because it wasn't as big as it is now. It's very much invite. Do you remember when that was, Tom? Uh, what year would you say that was, mate, when you started the first Gracie Baja in Leeds? Asking a question now. Um, I guess it must be like 2005. Yeah. 2005, 2006. If I was to, no, 2005, 2006. And was this above the, so, above the gym? Was it Flex? Is that mm, where it was? There? No, actually it was next to it to start with. So where oh, Flex okay. was, where you, you may have met us for the first time, we were in a little yeah. unit next to that, which we were subletting off a kickboxing club. It was cold right. and dampened. Um, and Braulio was traveling all over trying to get the Gracie Barra schools done. And one day I'd booked a seminar with Braulio on a Sunday. It was supposed to start at 11 o'clock. At 12 o'clock, Braulio still wasn't there. He was working on Brazilian time. And he came in, he was so flustered. He opened the boot of his car. He goes, I've got patches, I've got geese, I've got all this stuff, put it here. He literally dropped his pants, put his gi on, did a three-hour seminar. And at the end of it, he goes, oh, bro, do you remember my little brother, Victor? And I went, yeah, of course I remember Victor. I've met him a few times now, big curly hair and stuff. And he went, yeah, yeah. He goes, he's ready. He's a black belt now. He's ready. And I went, and what does that mean? And he went, I want him to look after the Northern uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu clubs. Um, he's really good. And, and I knew he was really good just from being a fan of Jiu-Jitsu. And he goes, can he come and do the seminars next? And I was like, of course he can. Absolutely. And from there on, Braulio handed over kind of the family introduction to his brother, as you know, as, as Victor Esteem, the legend that is. And from there on in, I had the relationship with Braulio from a long time. And Victor was just this young firecracker that was after it all the time. Every role was like a war. It was, it was a different type of jiu-jitsu. And that kept on going. I stayed under him. I received my brown belt, as you know, and my black belt from him and my first and second. Hand. So been directly under him ever since. So it's, yeah, me, the thing I found about my jujitsu journey, I don't know about yours because I'm not you. Um, I was fortunate enough for people to introduce me to people. So I was introduced to Mauricio and then Mauricio it got organically introduced me to Hodger. You know, Hodger was then out of the country. So then Mauricio brought Braulio in and Braulio was a brown belt at the time. He was hungry. He was trying to make, find his way in the world. And then he introduced me to his brother and his brother then was then responsible for the rest of my jujitsu journey, along with these other people that shaped it throughout the years. So it's that's how it came in it. 
it's different now because there are academies everywhere, right? Like back then, you had mm. to be introduced because there was like two or three people in the whole country. And then what's remarkable mm. about thinking about back then, 15 years <clears> ago, which isn't a lifetime ago, you know, you were traveling two, three, four, five hours to find the knowledge to bring back to share with your students. Like that was what happened. I remember when I first mm. met you, you would go away to seminars or come back and go, oh, I've learned this new thing. And you'd share it. Because mm. of course, back then there was no instructionals there was no bjj fanatics there was no online stuff there was like the odd vhs that you kind of get or dvd yeah at best the rest of it was learned person to person right and so it took the a good lot stuff longer. was always learned by a person yeah but the process took longer right like you know to get mm. that knowledge you couldn't just dive into a rabbit hole online and see all this jujitsu it just didn't exist so i we could no. only learn you that, that was the thing like if you wanted to learn jujitsu you had to go to class Yes, and um, but that should be that. Honestly, from from my opinion, should always be how it's done. Uh, anything that you learn off the internet, yes, it has worth and merit. But jujitsu is about feel. It's about uh, refining technique, and you know, there's. I mean, I went. I, I really liked a guy called Frank Shamrock as a, as a martial artist. I thought he was ace. Um, and I got his VHS and I was like practicing his knee bars. I thought they were great. And the, we were just doing one for one on each other. Then I actually went to a Frank Shamrock seminar and he had a broken arm and Braulio was there as well. And it was really awkward and fun and great. He showed some stuff, but most of it was fitness. And then he rolled with a few people and, you know, Braulio was a friend and an acquaintance and I was a student. But Frank Shamrock was a UFC fighter, a legend. I was like, oh, my God. And Frank rolled with a few people. He had his arm in a little bit of a pot where he'd sprained his wrist. Did not roll with Braulio. Honesty on the mat, integrity on that, didn't go anywhere near with him. And from that moment, on, I was just like, yeah, I'm going to go to Braulio and Victor sure. and, and, and get the feel. Get that. Um, I don't know if you remember me telling you, I was very... Uh, uh, I'm very minute, detail-focused. I'm very yeah. concept-orientated. Me too. Funny old thing. And you can't always get that without the dexterity. I mean, you can, you, can, you can write it down yourself. I need to focus on point A and point B. But you need to be in a classroom. You need to be with a person. You need to have someone that knows that technique inside out over you going, all right, that's how I've learned it. Now you refine it. And I think that keeps it honest. Definitely. I mean, I'm asking what I'm quite interested in now. So it was kind of late 2000s then. Um, you introduced to Victor, you were at Flex. Then when I first met you, was 2009 above that gym uh, in Flex, yeah. I think with the barn doors that would open and the wind would howl in. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And obviously Lewis, that was his first night and my first night. And then for, obviously that's the start of my journey. So that's 2009, I think it was. And then mm. you moved to the mill building, right? And then it became yeah. a bit bigger. Is that right? Yeah. So it was around 2009, uh, end of 2009, um, there was this really cool guy called Nesta who yeah. was working for a company called Made for Fighters, which was a, a Leeds-based martial arts, a very good martial arts company, uh, supply company. And he came and he, he very much like you guys was very much involved in the jiu-jitsu thing. And he had an idea of doing a partnership and 
getting our own place because we're paying so much in mat fees. He wanted a place to train. I wanted a place to train. He was staying in Leeds. And through his backing and support, we got the mill building, um, renovated it, knocked down walls, children painted it, um, put the weights in and matted it out, had that dingy office where everybody got changed. Um, and that was really for me within Leeds when it was actually real then it was really real and I wanted to create a space a little bit different to what what it is now um my idea was all I want to do is train jiu-jitsu and I want my friends to train jiu-jitsu and I want an academy to do it in with nice blue mats and a toilet that flushes and heating would be lovely and didn't always have that we were there. Though. No, I, I realized as a new businessman very early on that heating costs money. <laughs> and at that point, people were still very much used to paying, you know, four pound a lesson for three hours worth of training. Um, I didn't really understand the value of knowledge then, if I'm honest. I was all, I was very much about this is awesome. This is jujitsu. These are people from all walks of life we've all got something in common and friendships were born. And it, I tried to have the best of both worlds. I tried to have a business and I tried to have my friends. Um, I ended up having my friends, which worked very well for me, I think in the end. Um, and then we moved to the bigger unit because it had us. Uh, the problem with the first Greater Barra Leeds, the big one that you came to was that split level with that little step and the bollards. Post in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we had good times there. We had really good times there. We had good seminars, I think anyway, but the opportunity came for the bigger one with the hundred square foot mat. And I jumped all over it and we were there until I couldn't do it anymore through personal commitments. And when was that mate? When, when, so how long did that journey last for? So about five years ago. So what were we yeah, in 2002? 2015, wasn't it? Yeah, something like that, where I let go of the academy space and was fortunate enough to have um, friends that were students who were teaching in other locations. And I, and I basically, I love teaching jujitsu, but I had to focus on the family and I had to focus on career. And so I took a step back um, from running an academy and actually started my jujitsu journey very much again with a different mindset. Um, still a teacher, um, but able to even sometimes when you love a sport and it becomes your life, it becomes a little, sometimes the shine of the sport and what you do is taken off because, you know, you'll look at the mats and, you know, instead of being a hallowed ground where you can feel comfortable, I'm looking at that going, it's ripped. That's going to cost me money to fix. I've got to prioritize the students need gas bill. I've got so I just wanted to go on the mats and not care anymore about um, the the burden of running the academy, as I found it. Yeah, but it's actually go place. back to what I, yeah, go back to being with my friends, teaching, and being on the mats, and that's you know I slowed it right down and um, have travelled the world since then doing jujitsu, and I'm very welcome at a lot of the different academies and get to experience jujitsu from many different sides as well as still teaching so i'm very blessed that 
I, I, I took that path, I think. Yeah. So what people won't realize um, is that that was the start of jiu-jitsu in the, the north of England, Yorkshire, really, right? In terms of Gracie Baja. So like what, I think what it's important to kind of recognize is all of the jiu-jitsu gyms that people see now, the likes of Scramble, Liam obviously started down with you, Lewis in Harrogate started down with you. There's so yeah. many, like all the jiu-jitsu academies have, have kind of born out of your you starting that first Gracie Baja gym pretty much. Is that, is that if you look at the, I, I'd love to say it was all my game, but there was a, if you remember back in the story, there was a core group of people training Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. There was me, Mark Spencer, um, who were kind of floating in and out. So Mark Spencer is very pivotal in Bradford doing the Jiu Jitsu. He came up, got his black belt and has got students and clubs through the fooling Kazan chain. Um, uh, uh, an independent model and then myself in Leeds um, grew what I like to think is is a, a decent sized club to start with and um, we have oh god how many black belts from the club now you Louis two, one, two. I think five came from the club I mean I never promoted black belt because I couldn't I wasn't a high enough rank but Victor who was yep. my head instructor, promoted students. Um, I don't want to say gave the nod to, but I, I, there is always a conversation because it's a big belt. Um, and if Victor isn't there all the time, he has to go a lot on what he sees by people making the effort to go in to meet him, but also by the feedback when, you know, as an instructor, when I go, I go, I can't handle him anymore. He's a phenom. He turns up, he teaches classes. He understands everything. He is what you would want we can have that conversation. So out of that, um, our Grace Bar leads, we have grown, if, if I may, I, I don't want to sound like we're crossing a line, but I didn't grow it. The club grew it. So Gracie Bar leads grew. And out of that, you have Scramble Academy, which is Liam and Fred. Uh, you have, uh, I can't remember what it's called, Senshi or something which is yeah. where the old Gracie Academy uh, Leeds Academy site was. You have yeah. Lewis, who was on his own journey, but you, but very much training with us at Harrogate. There's yourself, who was on your own journey, but based out of us, that now has this academy. Um, but also at the same time, there was a really good jiu-jitsu stroke boxer who was training all through my training. We came up together. We were in the same classes. A guy called Craig Tetley. Have you ever heard that yeah, name? Yeah, yeah. He runs Gracie Bar Bradford, yeah. He does. And he had a different journey to me. He actually up sticks. He, he met Browley on the same day as me and went on the same journey. But he literally, him and his wife, up sticks, packed all their stuff and moved to Birmingham for like five years. Yeah, he I heard that. Didn't he not used to sleep in his car and stuff like that to go to So. Yeah, so my understanding is, um, and you could ask him yourself because he is a font of knowledge as well. Um, he would work a 12-hour night shift, sleep in his car, or it was a van, underneath the academy, wake up for the 11 o'clock class, train all day, get a nap and do it. I did that for four years. And then he came back. And I remember a really interesting conversation, which was I was kind of flattered by, but also it's like, you shouldn't ask me. Um, I got a phone call from Victor and it was like, hi, um, Craig Tetley wants to open up Grace Barra Bradford. And at that time, Grace Barra Bradford was 
kind of in the geographic area of Grace Barrett Leeds. And he goes, do you think that'd be an issue? And I went, absolutely not. Got straight on the phone to Craig Telling, went, oh my God, you're coming back up north. And he went, yeah. I goes, my academy's open. And he did. He came and trained at my academy, um, well, not my academy, Grace Barrett Leeds. He showed me stuff because obviously he'd been living it every day, whereas I'd been jumping in, jumping out, jumping in. And then he opened up Bradford. And then you've got these two Gracie Barra academies within 10 miles of each other that are starting to produce really good students. Um, and one thing that I found from the Gracie Barra leads that I ran is I was very much with Gracie Barra leads, but if you're from another club, come and train. Doors always open. And if you train at Gracie Barra Leeds, you can go and train as well, anywhere you want. And that ability to come and go allowed students to move on and do their own thing. Um, so maybe, I don't know exactly the number, but there are at least from the journey to Gracie Barra Leeds as it was then, I think now possibly in the Leeds area, there are at least six or seven full-time, fully mattered, jiu-jitsu academies that are also churning out high-quality students. So back then, Tom, how did people find out about jiu-jitsu, you know, in like, you know, 2005, 2006, when you were starting up? When people came in, how did they hear about you? Word of mouth. Um, we had a little Facebook page, which wasn't that great because I'm not very IT-oriented. But if people wanted jiu-jitsu, it was word of mouth. And some people wanted to do UFC because what happened is kind of interesting because the boom of jiu-jitsu in the UK, in my humble opinion, was slightly different to everywhere else. Because what happened in America, for instance, they had the UFC, they had Hoist Gracie. Hoist Gracie lived in Torrance. Everybody trained jiu-jitsu. The Brazilians could travel up easily from Brazil, set up home, and everybody did jiu-jitsu and then did MMA. The UK was a little bit different it kind of grew really quick. MMA grew really quickly, faster than jiu-jitsu. So everybody wanted to be a cage fighter. So everybody was like, all of a sudden, everybody was in MMA club. Everybody was had like a little cage in their clubs and everybody was like, we're an MMA club. Okay, cool. But the one, there were kickboxers and tie boxers and judo guys who had seen this MMA bandwagon. And what would go, they'd go and have an amateur fight. And because of a fighting amateur, you can punch people in the head. So it just turned into a grappling match. And then it was a bit lacking in skills. So I, I remember, uh, you probably won't, but I remember this, this guy turned up to train jujitsu. And this isn't being derogatory at all. He's actually a really nice guy. I not remember his name for the life of me. But he turned up and he was like, I want to train jujitsu because I'm going to fight in the UFC. I went, awesome. Awesome. And he trained um, and he was very aggressive and very violent. Um, so he's hard to partner with. Um, I can't remember his name. In fact, he injured somebody's shoulder. I think it was Dr. Martin. If you remember Dr. Martin, he injured Dr. Martin's shoulder. His kids are members here, it, Dr. Martin. Yeah, so he's... he's yeah, still so he bounced, uh, this guy bounced in and out, but then he bounced back like six weeks later. And there was this martial arts brand then. You probably don't have it anymore, but it's called Tap Out. And he literally had the Tap Out logo across his neck i've told this i've told like, the story about this guy yeah i was like right okay uh okay you're not getting a job but moving forward what i mean by that little antidote is people want to do mma and become fighters so we got 
very we seem to get a lot of people that want to do mma and i was like that's cool yeah do mma but i'd rather you learn a little bit of jujitsu first and then it, it grew um I found that the people that are around me at the time wanted to do jujitsu. So they're either MMA guys that wanted just to come and learn to roll as an add-on to their skills and then fell in love with jujitsu, the proper Brazilian jujitsu, because that's all I focused on. Uh, or, or they knew what Brazilian jujitsu was and they'd heard by word of mouth or a mate had told them or they'd phoned someone or they'd been recommended. And for me, that was a big thing. I didn't, probably because I wasn't capable of but I didn't advertise. It was when Nesta came on board, we had the proper website and stuff. But in the early days, it was just word of mouth. And that's a really big privilege when somebody says, you should go meet this guy or this club and train there. Um, and that's how we grew. We, we, we just outgrew everywhere. Um, the student numbers went up and we had to get more structured. And it was lucky as the student numbers were growing for myself, Gracie Baja was going through this this um I, I call it the era of renovation where Gracie Barber realized that they needed to professionalize um and standardize and take ownership of people's learning. So they came up with the first fundamentals programs and the children's programs. And you know, it's it's grown more now and it's a lot more streamlined and they use more modern technology. But that my, our natural growth led to having to go to a structured class format, having to do fundamentals separate to intermediate, having sparring sessions and rolling sessions separate. Um, but I think a lot of Gracie Barra was um, not necessarily um, wasn't ne Grace Barra Leeds wasn't necessarily about uh, come and train there. They're going to turn you into world champions. It was go train there. It's good, but it's friendly. And you will learn jujitsu and you will have a laugh and you'll feel part of something. And that's what I wanted. So I feel, you know, we've had people from America turn up. We had people from, uh, there's a guy called Ben who comes back from Thailand every now and again. He comes and trains. Um, we have people from other clubs, from other cities who are just traveling with work going, hey, can they phone and go, hey, is it all right? Of course it is. Come. I've never charged them. Never a penny. But that was me. I just wanted, because I've been fortunate enough as well to go and do jujitsu around the world and I've never been charged a penny. Ever. It's one of the amazing things about jujitsu, isn't it? We, we spoke about it yeah. to our members already, about how you, you can meet a complete stranger and even just a cauliflower ear or a jits mm. t-shirt and you're like out for dinner You've got a place to stay. You've got somewhere to train. You've been introduced to the yeah, family. Yeah. It's like, where else does that happen? I don't know any other kind of sport or, or kind of um, pastime where you can become instant. And we've all had experience. Like I had it in New York. I had it in America. Mm. I had it in Canada. You've had it all over the world. T's had it in Australia. Got offered a job at GB Bondi. You know, he's yeah. only there for yeah. like a few months. So it's just amazing how it, how it happens. And I'm so excited for kind of how our students are going to start to experience that once lockdown is lifted and they do start to travel, it's going to be magical for them, really. Your students are so fortunate to have a full-time academy, a legitimate black belt to train with day in, day out with a structured program who it's, it's just something I wish I had in 2001. 
the ability to train with Mauricio every day would have been life-changing. I mean, the journey would have been the same. I'd have still ended up where I am, but I would have done it at a faster pace because it was that constant refinery and I didn't have to go away and come back. Did I ever tell you about my experience in Egypt, in Sharm el-Sheikh, no. where I met a guy that did jiu-jitsu? Amazing story, quick one. So I've gone to Sharm el-Sheikh with a girlfriend. It wasn't going that well. And I was bored, senseless. I mean, the diving was good, but there's only so much diving you could do. So I was walking from the apartment across to this gym that's at the other side of, of, uh, of Sharks Bay. So I walked across into the gym and I've got a Braulio Esteema back then because it wasn't Grace Barrett, it was Braulio Esteema Jiu-Jitsu T-shirt on. This is, when was this? This is like, it's like 2003, 2004. And I'm looking around and I'm not, as you can tell, I've never been a weights guy, not really been into that kind of stuff, but I got on a bike, so I was bored. Went and punched a punch bag a little bit, bored. And I was walking back, and there was this skinny, like really skinny dude that had a pair of like budgie smugglers on. The best way to describe budgie smugglers is really tight speedos. And he was just walking around the gym like that with nothing else on, just them, which I thought was weird being an Englishman covered up. And he went, Jujits. I went, looked at him straight away, my eye turned, and I went, Jujits. And he went, Baha? I went, Braulio. And he went, Alliance. I'm like, roll? Roll. And we both went outside. He was a purple belt. I must have been a blue or a purple that time. And literally, I spent the rest of my holiday meeting this guy every morning and doing jiu-jitsu. And he levered me. He was a legend. And he, it turned out he was one of the dive instructors who was just down there on doing, you know, the dive. He was a surf bum who trained jiu-jitsu. Absolutely amazing. Uh, and a week of jiu-jitsu learning and stuff just from a guy from a different club, massive language barrier in Egypt doing jiu-jitsu. Amazing. Awesome. And that, that happens all the time, right? And, and that, you know, as, as the, I mean, it's grown so big jiu-jitsu now, like even obviously when you started, there was no jiu-jitsu really. When I started, mm. I remember like going to an Eric Paulson seminar in 2003 up in Aberdeen. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> when he was in the UFC, <laughs> no one even knew who he was. And I didn't even know what yeah. the hell he was doing. I was just a brand new kind of jiu-jitsu guy. And from then to where it is now, it's a completely different thing. It's like a it's like a big sport now almost. You know, people are choosing to do jiu-jitsu over football or over rugby or it's crazy how it's hmm. grown, right? Yeah, it, 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 it's crazy. And I'll tell you what I found here. I'm, I'm on a small island here, but it's amazing what I found here. So I've come to this small island and on the island, there's like seven jiu-jitsu clubs wow. and the highest ranked person is a third dan and then there's me as a second dan and there's another guy who's a second dan and they're all splintered and i just like crazy they're all got like five students each um so i turned up to my first day at my new job so i work for the department of corrections for tasmania and they've got a combat room i'm like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna, I'm gonna turn up there with a gi and put the gi just strategically on the shelf literally five of the black belts of, of of the junior black belts work at the same place. So we have a combat room for ourselves. So all my jujitsu now is done through work. They have nice. a combat room, the purple belts, there's blue belts. Everybody does it. I mean, just wherever you are in the world, it's just grown. Interestingly enough, rugby's quite big here in AFL. And a lot of the rugby and AFL players on the off season train judo and jujitsu just to keep yeah. that contact in. 
And yeah. you're right. It's just it's just growing. It it's popular. People are choosing to put their kids into a jujitsu class with the right moral and ethical codes to learn discipline and skills. And you know, like football is a great game to play, but unfortunately, some of the spectators around it make it difficult to be a family environment. But jujitsu is all about caring. It's all about family. It's all about going for a barbecue after. It's hey, bro, come, you're in hardship. I'll look after you. So it's growing within children as well. So. Tom, uh, do you remember meeting Mike and Lewis for the first time, or do you remember what they were like as white belts? I remember a very strange conversation with Mike about what what work we did, um, and, or what work we had done, which was kind of weird. And then we went on and did jujitsu, which was great. Um, Lewis had known a little bit longer. I feel I feel like Mike came with Lewis, but then I think Mike disappeared for a little bit. Because it'd be like the Scarlet Pimpernel. He'd be there for a week, two weeks, and then it'd be off. Well, I'd, work, I'd work that, which we haven't disclosed. Yeah, so, I was working away quite a bit. Yeah, so. yeah. So, um, so, And to be honest, sorry, mate, was, Lewis at that point was much more committed to jiu-jitsu. Let's get that out there. Because he was travelling, like, even then, he was travelling, like, two hours from Moulton over to see Yeah, he was, he was crazy his hours. He'd drive, drive from a job and turn up and, and go. But also, he he's got that youth as well. You know, we, we talk younger. about Mike and yeah, he's 10 years younger than us. So, you know, he, he, he's, it's interesting. Actually, I'll talk about Mike and Lewis. There's this relationship between Mike and Lewis, which I've seen, I've seen this bromance bloom where like, you've got this big brother and younger little brother, like kicking on. There's a, there's a friendly rivalry going on yep. where, but there's always like in the back of my mind, there's always this big brother, Mike, that's always there for little brother Lewis. And now Lewis is kind of matured into a very good, very sound, very strong jujitsu practitioner, but also a great human being. But yeah, I remember them being, yeah, right. but I tell you what I do remember. Pardon? He's a father now as well. I think that you're right, mate. Cause it obviously like Lewis mm. rented his first house with Rebecca. It was my house. He rented and there has been that. And I was in mm. best man. It's been that, I suppose, kind of personal connection where I am 10 years older, but now obviously he's married, he's got a kid, you know, Rafi. So mm. he's now kind of, we don't see each other like that. I think we're more kind of equal, right? Yeah. And yeah, of course. Um, yeah, always. That's, 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 that was what was said at the wedding by a jiu-jitsu legend, I believe. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> yeah. But what's interesting between their relationship was the rivalry. The rivalry on the mat. I remember standing on. I can't remember what. I don't remember exactly what happened, but everybody was rolling, and it was at the gym with the two levels. So it's the first older gym, and I think Lewis got his belt before you. I think he got his blue belt before you. I think he did. Yeah. Yeah. I got my um, black belt before him. Let's just get that one on the you, record. You you did, but Lewis got his blue belt slightly before Mike, and. I remember the role just after that. And I remember stepping back with some other people and going, oh, it's on. And it was literally just people, legs and arms rolling around the entire mat. It was brilliant. As an instructor, I was just like, oh, hop, hop, hop. No, cap. Oh, I'm not even going to try. You guys sort it out. And the 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 difference in rolling styles as well was so evident with Lewis throwing legs and triangles and playing cross collar grip stuff and Mike 
coming on top and trying to dominate top position. It was just like you could see these two friendly rivals, these two brothers on and off the mat, actually in their good roles, you actually saw two very different jujitsu styles start to become part of who they were and their core ethos on jujitsu and how they were going to become and how they were going to go through their grades became very evident through their roles. And you see that a lot in that, in a, a lot in students. And I suppose, Mike, now you teach your own students and have had, you mean you taught at Grace Barra Leeds for a long time and mm-hmm. you, you see people picking up little nuggets and using their own ability to become their own jujitsu, taking little bits of you. And it's, it's what we saw through the early years in Mike and Lewis's epic roles is, is, Two two brothers squabbling, but actually with absolute finesse of jujitsu. And as it grew, um, it yeah, it was a thing of beauty at times. And sometimes it was just oh god, what's going on? Well, the thing the thing what, that we what? always talk about with Lewis and I is that they were the roles that he and I have shared have been the most intense roles in terms of like it felt mm. like a fight right? Particularly mm. when he's getting ready for competition and I enjoy kind of helping him get ready. It's really quite mm. intense and quite violent. Yeah. It's always super safe and super respectful. Mm. There's never been, we've had fallings out off the mat for certain reasons. We've never fallen out on jujitsu ever. It's never been an issue in any jujitsu that I can remember. Well, it can't be because it's honest. Right. And, and that's a thing. That's a thing to keep it in mind as we all go through this jujitsu journey you know me 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 as the bell i'm at now uh reevaluating my jujitsu journey and you opening up this amazing mecca for jujitsu and t you experiencing jujitsu from different instructors and coming through is it's the honesty of it you if you're angry at somebody on the jujitsu mat there's only two reasons one they shouldn't be there or two you shouldn't be that's a great point but it is for everybody, but you just have to readdress your mindset. If you've tapped early, tapped fast, that's fine. Find the win in the fight. It's not always about getting the tap. It's finding the win in the fight. And if you can do that, then you will always get something out of every role. You don't need to be angry. Roll angry, you lose because you lost all credibility. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point, man. I talk a lot about, you know, when you're trying to escape a bad position, if you're escaping it in a non-technical way, you end up in a worse position. Like you've got to have, hmm. still have that kind of thought process. You know, if you're just trying to go angry and push and pull, it's going to get worse. You need to just kind of almost accept the position you're in and, and be purposeful in your technique, you know, to escape and you will, right? It's the people who can't yeah. control their emotions, I think, is is the thing in jiu-jitsu who struggle the most, right? Those We've had a few, you'll have met a lot, I've met a few, they cannot get the head round the fact that they lost, tapped, right? They can't yeah. get the head round it and they can't accept it. And then, it, to be honest, they never come back. I remember that guy with the big tap out thing. I don't remember seeing him mm. again. Like, he just disappeared, you know, and, and those yeah. people never play in the game, man. No, and, and the, the thing is, jiu-jitsu is hard. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an art form, but it's a, it's a life journey and it is a commitment. If you want to get good at jujitsu, you know it's not just about learning techniques. It's not just about turning up to competitions. It's not. It, it's about time. 
And you need to have something in you that's just able to give something time. And I think jujitsu is like life. You start off young in it and and you're and you you think you know everything and you're all you know, like a teenager almost, you're all like, I know everything, you can't tell me anything, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to fight this way. And then 10 years down the line, you're no longer wearing like really embossed t-shirts, right? you're just like, <laughs> you know, you look, you, look, you look like Bill Gates, you just turn up, do your jiu-jitsu and go home, you're not, you're not about that anymore, you know. But when you start out... But that is a great analogy, off. Tom, I'm, and I'm going to steal that off you. Jiu-jitsu is like yeah. life. You know, you're, yeah. you're, you are an infant, you know nothing, then you're a, mm. a kind of this brash teenager. That's an awesome way to put it. I've never heard that before. This brash teenager who's blue belt, who's flying about, cutting up, doing what you want. And then you become a black belt and you're in your mature years and you've got your whiskey and you're sat by the fire and you're doing your jiu-jitsu. And you see it through a different lens. I don't know yeah. about you, but when I got my black belt, it felt like my journey started again, but in a different way. Mm. I'd like stepped through into a different world almost. You know, it was strange. Yeah, and you're, and you're very right. I mean... And even now, even now, I mean, I don't own a club anymore, but I still teach. My jujitsu has changed so much over the years. I mean, I still like me on belly because it's the best position ever invented. But um, I'm I'm slower as but my body ages. And I see myself thinking about Mauricio Gomez when I first met him, who, who is already an older gentleman, and how he moved methodically. Every grip was important. You know, now I see myself... Um, with through my role at work teaching people very basic Brazilian jiu-jitsu to allow them to do their job with very violent people very safely and given like somebody that like for instance a 50 year old librarian who now passed the interview on physical is now going to be working with maximum rated detainees who are violent on a specialist line and I get I get to impart some knowledge on her which will help her with confidence take take down this person and do the job but five six years ago all i wanted to do was be on the mat with you guys rolling around upside down and trying like to do beer and barlows i remember i remember the day i remember the day i hit two in a row one on you and, and on dave is it dave your mate dave with a yeah, team yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. i hit two beer and barlows one on you and one on him dave with the team man <laughs> i hope he's gonna listen to this he actually owns a club in northern ireland now did you know that I did. Not, I heard a rumor he was doing it, but I didn't know it was up and running. So that's yeah. again another person who, who through their own journey has touched Gracie, the old Gracie Barra Leeds. But this is really, really interesting. Gracie Barra Leeds was never a building. Gracie Barra Leeds was never one person. Gracie Barra Leeds was you, Lewis, uh, myself, Khalil. Um, you know, Adam. Adam, you know, loads of other people who were all involved, you know, and then you've got the young guns coming through like Liam Khan, who, who, who isn't Gracie Barr anymore, but the influences through his jujitsu are very much, you know, when you go through your roots of jujitsu, when you go through your roots of jujitsu, you always remember the pinnacle moments and jujitsu. I, I honestly believe the spirit of what Grace Barra Leeds was touched many people and helped them go on their own jujitsu journey. Um, some people may have liked, not liked what we did because of reasons that I will never understand, but my door was always open and I was always polite. And, you know, everybody can come try. 
and everybody yeah. should pass on the knowledge of jiu-jitsu. It's a, it's a good point to kind of, I suppose, get towards the close on really, but like, uh, you know, generally, Tom, you know, a lot of people, whether they express this or not, you're the other side of the world now, mate, we're good friends anyway, but um, they are grateful for the fact that you had your journey and then opened up a place for people to come and train in. And it wasn't an academy like this. It wasn't a monthly fees. It was four quid. And if, if you could afford it, and if you couldn't, you could train anyway. The classes lasted for as long as you had the energy for. And it was, and you were still going around. And so I just want to say like on camera, mate, to, to kind of stamp it, like, thanks very much, man, for, for being the guy who, you know, in, in really started jujitsu here in Yorkshire, right? In Leeds specifically, it was, it was you, you know, I know you're humble, but you've got to accept that it was you who did that. And I just want to kind of offer this invitation to you. I do hope one day you'll be back in the UK, man. And, you know, we want to have you here straight away doing a seminar for our students so they can meet you. Um, and what they will realize is that my jiu-jitsu pretty much is your jiu-jitsu. You know, neon belly top. Probably a bit more refined. <laughs> well, who knows? Yeah. But it's definitely based on on the way you play jiu-jitsu. So thank you mm. for your influence, mate. And thank you for doing what you've done for everyone in our area for jiu-jitsu. It's much appreciated. Uh, there's no need to thank me. Everybody went on their own journey and we're all on it together, even now. Even now, we're all on the same journey, maybe miles apart, but I'm still teaching and training jiu-jitsu and I get to watch you train jiu-jitsu and I've picked up some little nuggets from your little training videos. So, <laughs> Tom, um, thanks so much for, for coming on and, and making the time for us to tell your stories to the members and, and, and to us. Uh, ho hopefully we can do part two, three, four and five of this and, and hear more about the old stories. Whenever you want to catch up, I'm only 12 hours and 13 minutes in front of you. <laughs> All the best, brother. Cheers, Good to see you, man. Thank, Thank you, you for your time, guys. You take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>